0: Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. On the Logistics of Logistics, I talk to experts in logistics and transportation, warehousing, fulfillment, supply chain, and, of course, technology. And during these interviews, I'm always the one asking the dumb questions. I ask the dumb questions so you don't have to. Today's topic is MIT Center for Transportation and Logistics with my friend Chris Kaplis. Guys, you definitely want to hear Chris Kaplis. Chris is a professor at MIT, and MIT is one of the top logistics and supply chain schools in America, and they're very closely linked to industry. In fact, Chris also has a role over at DAT, so that tells you how close he's, he's in it. We had a wide-ranging conversation about some of the research they're doing. We also talked about Electric vehicles, we talked about supply chain issues in China and a million other things. But before we get to the interview, I want to tell you about my friends over at Tusk Logistics. Tusk is a small parcel shipping network and they can save you 40%. Listen up, if you are a shipper of e commerce and you do a lot of shipments, if you're a warehouse guy and you do a lot of shipments, you can save 40% with Tusk. So, It's T-U-S-K, logistics, tusklogistics.com. Get over there. Check them out. They have something right at the top of their webpage that says get started. And the way they're able to save you that 40% is they have pre-negotiated rates with a whole bunch of regional small parcel carriers. Those regional small parcel carriers provide superior service and they're cheaper, you can save 40% and have the same or even better service. Plus, Tusk has got a great technology that links it all together, so you get proactive support from Tusk and superior service in 40% savings. So check them out, tusklogistics.com. You won't be sorry. So today's topic is MIT Center for Transportation and Logistics with my friend Chris Kaplis. How's it going, Chris? It's going well. Thanks, Joe. I'm excited to talk to Chris. So for for those of you living under a rock, MIT is Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And they have, I think, one of the number one, number two, you could argue this all day, best logistics program and I'm sure it's much more than just logistics, it's transportation, it's everything and Chris is one of the professors there. I'm excited to get into some of the things they're doing not just with the undergrads, the 18 to 22 crowd, but also for those of us who are already working in industry and we'll talk about some of the topics they research and study over there. So Chris, please introduce yourself and your company or your school and where you're calling from today.
1: Yeah, so I, uh, I'm Chris Kaplis. I'm the executive director of the MIT Center for Transportation Logistics. Uh, CTL has been around for 50 years, actually. We're celebrating our 50th anniversary, so it's kind of fun. We had uh, Fred Smith, founder of C of FedEx, about a month ago here, kicking off our ceremony. We have uh, John Moeller, uh, CEO of P&G, coming for a session, uh, Shelly Simpson, president of J.B. Hunt, some other people coming at another session. So this whole year is the 50th anniversary of CTL. And so MIT is a weird place. It's a, you know 10,000 students, and they're really diverse, five schools. And what's nice is there's a bunch of independent centers. And these centers are not within one school. They kind of work across. So my center, Center for Transportation and Logistics, works with the School of Economics, School of Business, Sloan, Engineering. And so we work across those to solve problems. So we're about 80 researchers and staff here and we have about another 80 to 100 students that we have as well. And to your point, Joe, we don't deal with undergrads. I know they're here on campus. I don't see them. I work with graduate students and executives because the center is kind of a more, more advanced as opposed to some of the more traditional basic stuff that we teach undergrads. So CTL, do, we do three things just really quick, and we can dive into each of these as you wish. We do education. We do research. And then we also do engagement with companies. And so the whole idea of all three of these is to drive innovation into practice. And what I mean there is uh, every school tries to do research, innovation, new things. At CTL, we're very much driven to make it more practical oriented. We're not an ivory tower. We don't do pure theory work. We all have our PhDs and we make things rigorous, but it's only important if it impacts the industry. Practitioners, because we supply chain is a very applied science, and so we want to make sure that we impact the way companies, shippers, carriers, brokers, manufacturers, retailers change the way they operate. Does that make sense? Yep, total sense. And by the way,
0: one of the things I'm I'm big on LinkedIn. I go on LinkedIn, and I'm always looking at people's LinkedIn. And in the last three four years, you probably noticed the same thing: how many people went to MIT or Harvard or Stanford or Michigan, where you go, where would they went? Oh, they went there. And what they are is a lot of times executive education programs. And by the way, we need that desperately because in the olden days, getting a degree and getting out was good enough. And you say, yeah, I got a degree in accounting or engineering or whatever it was. And you never went back to school. But now we know that people switch careers and in in technology is changing things so darn quick. Also, when you're 40 years old and you got a wife and kids Mm -hmm. or a husband and kids, you don't have time to quit your job and go back to school to get a a degree in something else. That's where some of these other programs. And so I know, we'll, well, why don't we talk about it now? What is the logistics micro master's program?
1: Yeah, yeah. So um, I agree with you 100%, Joe. Uh, we, we believe that education's a career long thing. It's no longer four years undergrad. And when you're 21, you're done and you've learned all you need to do. So what we've really been pioneering over the last 15, 20 years is the democratization of education. And that involves two main things. One is making it available and accessible to everyone, but also breaking it into modules. And making it more easier to consume. You don't need to quit your job. You don't need to go away for four years or even two years. And so what we've done over the course of the last 25 years is we first introduced a one-year master's program, supply chain management program, that's been around, like I said, for 25 years now. And that's where you spend just one year. And it's usually someone in the age of 28 to 30. They have a couple years of experience. But five years ago, we did something uh, kind of revolutionary, certainly for up here at MIT. We created the MicroMasters program. And the MITx MicroMasters Credential in Supply Chain Management is something that we launched in 2015 with then-president Rafael Reif up here at MIT. And what it consists of is five 12-week-long courses, online, asynchronous, and so they cover things, supply chain fundamentals, supply chain analytics, supply chain design, then we go into... um, design and systems and then finally technology and so they kind of as a whole gamut and it's the same stuff that we teach here in person and so that's available online would you say five 12-week courses yes yeah that's not too bad it's equivalent to a full semester up here at MIT that's how we designed it to be and if you take those and then finish it with a comprehensive final exam to make sure you know we have to make sure you've really absorbed that stuff then you get this credential And right now, we have just shy 5,000 people have earned that credential. We've had over a million people register for at least one of the courses, Uh, like Supply Chain Fundamentals is our most popular one. It's where you learn about forecasting, demand planning, inventory management, and we dive into transportation, kind of the the cornerstones of logistics. But we have other programs to get into network design and those kind of things. But what makes MicroMasters so unique is, You do this all online, and like I said, we've had a million people register from 194 different countries. Can't do it if you're in Iran or North Korea, sorry, but uh, anywhere else you're good. If you pass this and do well, you can apply to MIT. And if you get in, you'll get a master's degree in one semester. And so we've had that for now six years. And what's really neat about this, it it gets to your point, Joe. The, The people who come in tend to be older. Average age is about 35. They've been working for a number of years. We've had people come in who did not finish their undergrad, but came here because they couldn't finish for many reasons, family, professionally, financially, whatever the reason. If you do the work, that's fine. So the MicroMasters, what's so cool about it, anyone can take it, and all the content is free. Absolutely free. All the videos, you can go go to MITx, just Google MITx MicroMasters supply chain. Let's put a link in the show notes. Yeah. Now, if you want to get a credential and earn something that says you did so well, that costs a little bit. I think it's like $299 a course. And the reason why is because you could eventually get MIT credit for this. We have to go to great lengths to make sure that academic honesty is uh, followed. And so we have a lot of things we're doing to try to make sure that cheating is minimized, right, to try to make sure that we know the work that you do. So... This is a program that's been going on, and it's it's fascinating because when I go around different places in the you know before the pandemic or around the world or around the country, you just see people who want to do this, and it's an it's a way for them to access supply chain uh, education. And it's exactly to your point that you don't have to go away for somewhere. We have people. I, I was just t- talking with someone who's in Nairobi, and he watches the videos on his phone on the bus as he goes home. People are doing it you know after work at night so whatever fits your schedule but uh, what we try to do is make the education meet you where you are and it, it seems to be working i told you i went to school at night so i got my undergrad
0: and my masters degree at night and it was a giant pain in the ass it's it's hard to go to school at night and what's also weird is i remember i was 38 years old i was managing i was managing product launches automotive product launches in china and so i had all i was an engineer and I remember um, my professor at the University of Michigan said, you know, we, we need to get you uh, some experience in education. And I was like, well, I do lots of workshops for my teams. And, you know, I, and anyway, he said, yeah, but I need you to take a leave of absence from your and get some real education because I have my master's in education. And I was like, I was like." There is no leave of absence in the real world. There is like, it's a sabbatical. I was like, that's that's not a real thing. That's not a real thing. Yeah. So what you're talking about makes so much more sense. I love it. And I, I love the, that we can all do it and make the, maybe it's a career change where you say, I'm close to logistics and supply chain, but I'm not in it. This gives me that ability to make that 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 jump, that transition.
1: Yeah, and I think something else to this point, sometimes you might not want to take all five courses. There are a lot of people who take just one of the courses. Or they just say, hey, I like this video. I'm going to watch this. I want to learn a little more about SNOP. And they dive into that. So I think what we're seeing more and more is almost the modularization of these elements. Because people want to consume different things. Sometimes you want a snack. Sometimes you want a full feast. And so we try to, again, make it so that the education meets you where you are. But let me make a, a point about what you said about night school. Before when I was at a software company, because I before I came back to academia, I taught at University of Richmond at night for just a year or two. And they were the best students because they were working full time and they wanted to be there. As we all know, and when you go to some places where the undergrads, they're a little entitled. You know, if someone's only been in school their whole life for the last 15 to 20 years. They don't know anything else, and they'll let. It's like you can lecture to robots, and they'll just take notes. Well, we're not. We talk hung to people that we're not hung over. They're working. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but but people who are working full time, they will challenge every word. They are there if they want to, because they're there at seven o'clock, eight o'clock at night. So best students I've ever had.
0: Yeah. By the way, I, there's a University of Michigan has Ann Arbor campus, which is the famous one where everyone knows. That's where the frats are, and the football team, and the basketball team, and all that. And then they have these satellite campuses: University of Michigan Dearborn. That's where I went. And then um, University of Michigan has something in Flint. I noticed. I'm old enough now. I noticed the most successful people from my graduating class. They went to University of Michigan. Dearborn, because they were going to school at night. And it is different because you're you're there to learn. You're there to get your master's or whatever. But I just I love that we're giving people options because I, I'll tell you, my mother, brilliant woman, she didn't have the options to go to school. She was a, a family member had passed away. She was raising somebody else's kids at 18 years old. And so she thought, I, it's best that I help this family, right? It was her cousins. And so then she worked her whole career in uh, medicine but she was never able to get a degree because it was just wasn't an easy thing to do sure. And it's funny, the doctors who work for her said, she runs this office. We're not in charge of this business. She is. And, and I always thought, but she could never, 25 years experience does
1: you nothing without some sort of credential. But- well, that's, that. you know what, that's starting to change. I think the tight times of nano credentials, micro credentials, because you don't need to have a big degree. And also undergrad, as as you're alluding to, it's, more, it's not as much about the classes as growing up, becoming an adult. It's like a rite of passage. And so there's so much in special a lot of undergrad programs that is just total fluff. Yes and, yes, yes. and 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 eventually tuition is catching up to this. The rate of inflation of tuition for college is it's like 3x the normal rate. It's right. it's ridiculous because people are paying for climbing walls and all these other things as opposed right. to pure education. The student teacher ratio is not getting smaller. Yeah. That's that's a frustration. Yeah, that's the rise of administration costs, that's
0: what it is, oh, rise of the building costs, yeah, it's. Um, but anyway, that's a whole other podcast, and I go on and yeah, on about yeah, this all yeah, the time, yeah, yeah. but tell us a little bit about you, where'd you grow up, where'd
1: you go to school, give us some career highlights before you joined MIT. Sure, so I, I grew up in Connecticut, and I went to undergrad at a small school in Virginia called the Virginia Military Institute, or VMI. Oh, well, that's well known, though. Yeah, is it? Oh, VMI, it depends where you are. Down south of the Mason-Dixon, yes. You get a little farther north, it's like, what? What is this thing? But anyway, so VMI, I went there for my undergrad. I was a civil engineer. And as a, uh, I was there under a ROTC scholarship, so I was in the Army for five years. So I was in Germany. You paid uh, for Building it. tank ranges. <laughs> yeah, tank ranges and, uh, you know, Pershing missile sites, all that kind of stuff back in the 80s. Came back here to Fort Hood. Knew I didn't want to stay in the military. Five years was good for me. So then I went and got my master's degree at UT Austin under Mike Williams, a great civil engineering lead professor. So I decided that I wanted to get into transportation, but I decided that I didn't want to. At that point, I was a civil engineer. I was building roads and all this stuff. And I realized that if you're going to do that, you're going to work for the government. And I didn't want to work for the government. And so I, I taught for two years back at VMI decided, you know what, this PhD thing, I'm going to try it. So I went back. I was a little older student. I, I went back when I was 31, 32 to get my PhD, and most PhDs were six years younger than me. And so I got that under Yossi Sheffi here in civil engineering. But I, instead of building roads, I studied how to use roads. And my dissertation was on using combinatorial optimization to improve the procurement of truckload transportation by shippers. And so it was solving a business problem on using networks and optimization things uh, that, that are pretty common here in academia. And the nice thing about that is that turned into a product. And it was turned into a product called OptiBid that was uh, then with a company called Sabre that became logistics.com. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I, I ran that for about eight, 10 years. Uh, did the first bids we did were with uh, Quaker Oats, Procter & Gamble, then Walmart did one. And now the whole idea of using optimization for an auction for transportation procurement, the RFP, that's what we started. And we've been doing, uh, I've been doing since 1995. But then I decided uh, in the dot-com bubble, kind of filtered out in around 2002, when logistics.com was starting to go down the drain before it was acquired by Manhattan Associates, I got a parachute out. And so I... uh, Joined Chainalytics, a company that does uh, analytic supply chain consulting. Yeah, they're still around. Or did they get bought? I haven't seen that name lately. Okay, so I was with them. I was their chief scientist because I also then joined MIT. And so Mike Kilgore, who was the CEO, founder and CEO, we I was brought on to be VP Transportation. But then I came back to MIT, and so he we said, "Well, what what do you want to do?" And so I created this thing called Freight Market Intelligence, which was using benchmarking. To be able to rate what a truck truckload rate will be anywhere in the country, and that became essentially FMIC that was sold to DAT Freight and Analytics in ah, twenty twenty, and the consulting side of Chain was sold to NTT uh, just last year. So Chain Analytics is is gone for all intents and purposes, but it's uh, kind of like dandelions; it's kind of spread out to other it's organizations. D- its DNA is everywhere. Yeah. So DAT, Freight and Analytics, where I am now, I'm their chief scientist now, in addition to being here at MIT, they do the freight market intelligence, uh, business analytics, they call it part of DAT IQ. And so we we work with a couple hundred different shippers, thousands of brokers, and hundreds of thousands, literally, carriers, trying to improve the way that shippers, carriers, and brokers work together. I just talked to
0: Samuel, I'm going to draw a blank on his last name, from Dat Parker. Parker. What's, what's his job over there? He's uh, in marketing. He's a product I, marketer. I just saw him at... Manifest. Manifest. And he walked up to me and said, hey, Joe, how's it going? I was like, oh my God, I've been talking to DAT people for years trying to get someone on my podcast. And I'm pretty sure he says, you got to talk to Chris. <laughs> but I would already reached out to you separately.
1: Yeah, MIT, uh, the, the motto is uh, men and menace, uh, hand in mind, right? And so they uh, enable us to, they encourage us to work in the private sector as well, to do something outside of academia, because they really, they really complement each other and they inform each other. So that's what I love about M- MIT, but also CTL, because we're very focused on come up with something new, innovative, whatever, but make sure it works in practice. Don't just do research to publish in an obscure right. journal. I think you know maybe
0: in the olden days, and you know you had that vision of especially in Boston, these guys, professors wearing tweed jackets with the worn, worn elbows with the patches. And I've got a
1: tweed jacket. Don't and not almost almost Come having
0: it and almost having a distaste for industry. Like, oh, I would never. And and that's not useful. And I
1: don't think that's what we see anymore. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I think it depends on the the school and the program. Uh, MIT has always been very much, uh, you know, start your company, entrepreneurial based. And so there's so many companies that were started by MIT. And so they've been very encouraging of doing that. And so that's a great thing because what I find is the research I do here at CTL as part of the freight lab, which is something I started about 10 years ago, complements what I do at DAT. And I can see things move from academic down into industry and back the other way because sometimes industry leads Academia, and sometimes it's the opposite. And so, what we try to do here is be the conduit, and try to, you know, make sure things move and and move further. Because we what we believe is that innovation occurs at the fences. Right, it's where two people meet, and so by doing that, bringing things together, that we think that really helps and drives innovation. I like that. I've always heard the term innovation is between the boulders, so it's
0: somewhere between engineering and manufacturing, between the warehouse and the and the dock and the wherever you're picking up. But to your point, it's it's where two kind of separate industries come—not industries, functions—come
1: together. But to that point, I, exactly right. And so, one of the things we do up here at CTL, I talked about some of our education, our master's program, our online MicroMasters research, I can talk about in a second. But we also have an engagement where we work with about 50 ish or more companies. And so, what we do is we allow any kind of company come in, except for consultancies, because they're like, brain vampires and we keep them away (laughs) but what we do is we bring them in and so you have someone like intel talking to someone from procter and gamble talking to someone from starbucks totally different industries but shockingly they discovered they have a same problem and so they something that might have worked in one industry gets applied to the other so we try to make it specifically not focused on an industry but allow them to come together and so we found that that's very beneficial it sounds as if, and I'm not just saying this to
0: be nice, but it sounds as if you guys have kind of found the model that we always needed, and you've been doing it for a while, but I think this is, you know, I I've, I've say to my friends all the time, we talk about college football or college basketball, and we always say, we're in a flat-out foot race to see what breaks down first the college athletics or the college model, And but I see a lot of innovation in colleges because I have a, a relative who's a professor at University of Michigan, and she said. We're switching gears. We're doing many more of these certificate programs. It's not going to be an education for just the the smartest kids who have the deepest pockets. It's going to be for kids who are, you know, maybe you got, maybe you got a day job, but you can still get a degree there.
1: Yeah. But the, also the thing is, if you want to learn something, a, a concept or something, I can go online. Khan Academy is better than any undergrad or high school <laughs> teaching I've had. If I want to brush up on something like Lagrangian functions, I'll go there. And in 20 minutes, 30 minutes, it's like, oh, OK. So the uh, YouTube, when's the last time you know, you wanted to learn something and you had to ask someone? You just go to YouTube. I was doing some sheetrock in my basement put, putting something up. And it's like, ah, I better go check it. And I watched framing and everything. And 20 minutes later, I was an expert. So the access to education is, is crazy.
0: I watch YouTube more than anything else. And I tell my kids this. I said, I started work without the internet. And I said, so when you were in meetings and somebody started using acronyms or words you didn't know, you just kind of, kind of casually walked by and kind of, if you had an engineering book, you'd kind of look it up. And I said, and that was also at a time where there were dumb questions. Now there's no dumb questions. There was a lot of dumb
1: questions when I grew up. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's hard for people to think of what we have access to these days. It's things have changed dramatically since we grew up. Yep. So
0: let's talk a little bit about some of the topics that you get into that interest you, that you that you do research on, that you study, and also engage. And I saw some of those on your website. And I think one was called Future Flows. And I think one was yep. called Freight Future Lads. Freight Flows.
1: Yeah, Future Freight Flows. So what is that? Yeah, so this was a project that was started by uh, the Department of Transportation and TRB, Transportation Research Board. And um, this was about eight, 10 years ago, And they wanted to know, how should state departments of transportation, DOTs, decide how to invest in freight infrastructure? Because as you know, for companies, your long-term frame for planning is 5 to 10 years. For the government, for for infrastructure, it's like 50-plus years. Because it might take 5 to 10 years to get permitting, 5 years to build it, and then it's got to live for 30 to 40 years. So you have a much longer time frame. And so what we did for them is we developed a, a... process called scenario planning. We adopted it from some other things. And it's, an, it's, a, it's a practice to not predict the future, but to prepare an organization to face the future. So instead of predicting events, you prepare for the effects of different events. And so what we did is developed uh, four different scenarios. And this is all online. We can give the link for this. It's all yep. there free on, on our Future Freight Flow site, because you can use the same technique we've done for dozens of companies. But you have these scenarios, and the idea is you place yourself in one of those scenarios, and you think, okay, this is the future. This is what the world looks like, and then you ask yourself, okay, what are the strategic questions we're asking for this project? It was what infrastructure makes sense, and so you have these four different scenarios that we had created, and one was um, one was a uh, new world order, which is more like the WTO with a with a fist. We had. Uh, one that was more millions of markets, which is more everything independent. And so one we had different ones that had very different sides of, of what the future will be. And then you come back together after you've split up and done this and say, okay, what, what things make sense across all the scenarios, what don't doesn't make sense in any of the scenarios, and what is kinda of makes sense in one but not the other. And then you kind of prepare yourself for it. And so what we found by doing this is that companies that do this they tend the people tend to be more open to looking at other things that uh, might impact their company. And so it's a way of planning or preparing the organization to be more dynamic, more flexible, more agile to when things change. So we did this about like I said in 2011 I want to say 2012 we went across the country six different workshops across different areas and it since has been implemented in many different companies it's a great tool to use to get companies, get an organization to think beyond their day-to-day job. Because, excuse me, one of the problems that that, uh, supply chain professionals have is they're too good at their job and they get tunnel vision. You know, they're focused (laughs) on getting the the trucks assigned, inventory, and they don't think bigger. And so this is a way to pull them back and think about the bigger picture and what are the things around the corner Mm -hmm. that might affect them. So that was a future freight flows project.
0: Yeah, we'll put a link to all of these in the show notes. And one of the things you said is that the government has to plan way in advance on the infrastructure. On another podcast, I was talking to our friend Jason Miller. We just talked about him before we hit record. I did something just talking about a frying pan or a skillet, how you make a skillet from 1940 to 2040, how it was built, where it was built, and how did it move to market. And what was interesting is doing some of that research, research for me is mostly Google, but before we had the highway system that was came in in the 60s and 70s, a lot of this country wasn't connected. And I am not one to give the federal government lots of credit, but I will give them a lot of credit when it comes to the highway system, because at one time, not so long ago, our stuff moved by rail. Now it moves by highway, and we still have rail, and I think we're going to get even better at rail. But there was large chunks of the United States was that was not connected. And that is the South and the Southwest. So there was parts of like out in Arizona, Texas that were not connected. And another thing, without air conditioning, who the hell wanted to connect with them? They live in a desert. So we've seen these huge changes. It's, it's in my lifetime. And I think one of the other things, maybe you can speak to this. A friend called me yesterday and he... He mentioned a whole bunch of company names, and he was talking about the situation in China. So China's kind of speculated that they might help provide Russia with arms, which means the U.S. would have sanctions against U.S. against China. China's it's different to have sanctions against China because fifty percent of our supply chain functions have are in China right now, and so I know we're talking about nearshoring, but that isn't an overnight thing for most businesses. That is a decade-long thing for
1: most businesses. Have you guys looked into any of this? Yeah, there's. you brought up a million different topics. No, right, of course then, I did. That's <laughs> what I do. <laughs> yeah, so, but for China, let's, uh, I think most companies have looked at, realized they can't depend solely on China and they're they're unwinding some things and uh, making it China plus one. And so Vietnam is benefiting from this. Uh, Southeast Asia, the Asian countries are benefiting from this. So wait, when say Asian countries? Thailand to Malaysia, Southeast Asia. Yeah. So that would be Thailand,
0: Indonesia, Thailand, Malaysia. Thailand,
1: Malaysia, Vietnam. Singapore uh, in there. All, Indonesia. Not as yeah. much, but yeah, in there. And you could even throw Japan in. But a lot of that is uh, people are moving things away. But you're right. There's such an ecosystem within China. It's hard. And there's been some talk about moving to Mexico. More things have gone there, but it's hard. It's a different—the government isn't isn't always as uh, amenable to some of this. But yes, I think companies have recognized you can't put all your eggs in the China basket. It's too big to ignore, but you can't depend on it solely. And so I think that's going to happen more and more and more of an unwinding. Right. And part of the conversation I had with my friend is, and I spent a lot of
0: time in China in the 90s, sounds like, sounds like 100 years ago. But once you build a plant, so I'm, th- I'm thinking of automotive because I'm an automotive guy. I put my plant over there. I've invested in the land, well, I don't know if I own the land, the factory, the the tooling, the machinery, the people. And then when somebody says, oh, well, we're we're uh, nearshoring now. Well, that is not overnight. That could take you a long time. And by the way, we let's just say that move from uh, Indiana or Ohio or Michigan or Wisconsin and went over there 20 years ago. You aren't able, easily able to come back with all the environmental requirements. And um, let's face it, we love to say, my company is very green. Because all our pollution moved to Asia, <laughs> so it's going to be an interesting time.
1: Yeah, but what you pointed to—it's not just moving the plant. There's an ecosystem of suppliers as yes. well, so it's not just creating it new. But I think what we're going to find is more of that. It's going to be moving over, and I think uh, the movement in automotive to EV—it's a simpler production process. There, the number of parts in an electronic vehicle versus a combustion engine—it's orders of magnitude smaller. So. That means manufacturing doesn't need to be as consolidated like it is now, so that might move things. Of course, most battery technology still is in uh, China so um, but I think it's something that's well recognized and I, I think if the if he does do something to align even more with Russia, the ramifications could be interesting anyway. I just was in at, at, at the week
0: after manifest, I was in Portland, Oregon, and I met with Matt McClellan from Covenant. And he is the vice president of Covenant Trucking down in Chattanooga, and he's the vice president of sustainability and innovation. So he was out there meeting, I think Freightlanders out there, some of the trucking companies. So I, I had a drink with him, and I said, "Tell me how this is going. Are, are we? How far are we from?" So you brought up the electric vehicles. That's a whole other rabbit hole for us. And he said, "Well, I kept." I kept pushing, and finally I said, Joe, there's no flux capacitor. That is that what you're asking for? Because I was asking, what's beyond electric? And I spent most of my career in automotive, and I hang out with automotive guys. My brother-in-law, our friends are all engineers or worked in at Ford and General Motors. None of them seem super confident that we have the capability to go all electric. And I think there was a study, and I have not looked at it myself, I saw the headline that McKinsey did that said, we would need 500 new mines worldwide to support the production of the EV if, if, as we go forward, 500 new mines. I don't know how many mines we have in the world, but that's quite a few.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, I don't. I'm not as familiar with the McKinsey report, but yeah, that's something that people. They only look at the. Uh, you know, you got to look at the life cycle. Right, the full scope three of a thing to see what the impact is, and and people conveniently forget that they think, oh, electricity that doesn't cause any pollution, and the you know the car, but yeah, the lithium batteries, the rare metals, it's it's a challenge. But I I think EVs are going to come in. They, they are it, eventually it'll get there. They're part of the solution for sure. But I think I just uh, my wife and I usually hang on to cars. The last car I had for fourteen years. I'm uh, right there awesome. with you. And so, but the things I think, and we just bought one last year, year before, that might be our last combustion engine car. I mean, it might be that EVs become the way and they're finding a way into industry too. Last mile. So we did a study or it was part of a study with Staples and their their delivery for their office supply stuff. And they, uh, this was about 10 years ago, they switched some of the drivers to electric vehicles and the drivers were... Hated it. Said no, don't do this. And then they drove them for a week, and they you couldn't get them out of it because they are so much more enjoyable to drive, and they're so much easier. So local short haul stuff, it's going to go all EV. It, it it just will. It's just so easy, and it, it, uh, cities will start forcing it down to for pollution. It's happening at ports now, too. But for long haul, I don't think it's there yet. The torque is By the there. way, one of the things I
0: had a conversation with Matt McClellan, and I had a conversation a few times, is there's a company called Remora, and they're not the only ones. And Remora is a carbon capture. They're capturing carbon out of the tailpipe and then turning it to liquid and selling it. And I think they're able to say, hey, this pays for itself because you can sell that carbon liquid form to, I think, concrete, and once once it's in concrete, it never gets back into the environment. Carbon capture is interesting, and I think there's gonna be, I think Exxon Mobil has a solution for it. I saw that on YouTube. The biggest company in the world, Saudi Aramco, sells oil, and they have a solution for it. I gotta think some of those guys, if you're the biggest company in the world, and you say, hey, the whole world is trying to stop using our product, what are we gonna do about this? Well, we're going to invest in carbon capture. So I think carbon capture might be part of that solution, uh, maybe in the long haul. And I could see could be, could if, the, if the federal government, again, I'm not always a giant fan of theirs, but this is where they could help maybe give a credit, maybe make it a mandate that we use those carbon capture if they all, in fact, work. But that's using technology we understand with externalities which is the pollution that
1: we understand <laughs> yeah i think um it's, it's funny your, your point about mobile um bp at a recent uh, announcement for a while there they, they were beyond petroleum that's what they would say bp and they kind of they're backing off of that now because they just weren't uh, they can't be that green but yeah i don't think it's fossil fuels aren't going away for a long time for different different areas where they make sense like natural gas was a considered a green you know energy source up until the fracking happened and the price went down suddenly environmentalists said oh that's a fossil fuel now because if you go back they used to say you know go natural gas instead of oil. that's, that's fine but once it became economically yes. viable suddenly it became a, a a bad thing it's a really strange thing i think we're also use that for a lot of this movement for sustainability is a trojan horse for people who don't like capitalism or whatever. And then this is the thing that needs to be brought down. And yeah, so right. therefore we're being punished. We're punishing the earth because we're greedy capitalists. And therefore we need to go back to the stone age. And it just doesn't make sense. I, uh,
0: I, I have a one of my daughters went to school at Aquinas University, or Aquinas College in Grand Rapids. And her degree is in sustainable business, which I really encouraged her to go in this. And it a sustainable business really just had the three ideas as, to be sustainable, business has to be good for the planet in the long run, right? And good for people and good for profits. You can't be good for two and bad for three. So if you say, we're really good for the planet and really good for people, and we lose $150 million a year, that's not sustainable.
1: Seven and when you, go,
0: when you go out of business, the next people aren't going to be good for the planet and good for the people. So we need to find ways to do all three. And I, I, I do agree with you. That's why when I'm bringing up carbon capture... That's assuming that we don't have a religious religious bent against
1: combustion engine, and there are some people who flat out do. Yeah, there's some. Yeah, when you look at um, you know you brought up environmental and sustainability, a lot of things now are getting wrapped into ESG. Right, which, which we don't talk about on this podcast Sustain- anymore <laughs> government. It's, it's a strange thing because you can't define half of it But yeah, equity, sustainability, environmental gets put into that S Yeah, and I'm all for doing the right thing But again,
0: I don't want it to become like, hey, this is what you have to do Because again, politics seeps into everything, doesn't it? And I, I hate that Anyway, we went all over the place. So we talked a little bit about these the future of the engine just now. And I think this really is going to... I mean, I joke about it, but it's probably no joke. Automotive is the biggest, baddest supply chain on earth. And huge upset right now. I'm trying to figure out what we're going to do about these electric vehicles. But when we look over at retail and you say, are we going to have the same retail makeup today with home delivery? We don't know. You know we like Omnichannel. So they're experiencing this
1: huge shakeup. I think every supply chain is seeing this. Consumers are, are in a great place right now because we have two mega models coming out. The Amazon model, which was originally all clicks, and Walmart was all bricks. And they're both going into <laughs> each other's backyard, right? And so they're two very different approaches to how they automate the warehouse, how they distribute, and just their philosophies. And I'd be curious to see who ends up ahead. really some interesting things going on but we're also beneficiaries in other industries like what tv where it's an embarrassment of riches for all the streaming services and things you have there and so (laughs) we have all these options and there's such competition between them so it's it's a great time to be a consumer by the
0: way i and i know you've probably seen the same thing but there was a a graph and it showed the the decrease in in television costs over the last 30 years. And then it's, so it's just the the price of a good TV just dropped like a rock. And on the other, it showed the cost of education, four years. And it was the exact opposite. And and that's not your, that's not completely your fault, Chris.
1: <laughs> but, um, but also the the communication, if you look at, when I, I grew up in the seventies, right? Long distance calls. When I was in, stationed in Germany from 84 to 89, 88, somewhere in there, to call back to to the states we'd have these phones and there'd be a little dial on there and as you call it starts spinning faster and faster now the cost of a phone call is zero and that to explain that to someone under the age of 30 oh yeah it's it's amazing cuz they you're just used to instant access to data instant access to communication i remember going and driving from my where i grew up in connecticut to, down to texas where i had to report in as a uh, captain and i was all, i didn't call anyone for 3 days And that was okay. Now you can't go an hour without someone texting you. Where are you? Yeah, 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 exactly. The connectivity is so, it's it's a double-edged sword. It's it's a great,
0: I always say every generation has to figure out. I remember when I was a kid, it was always like, you guys are all watching too much TV. And we were compared to our parents' generation that is now watching TV. And then it became the phones. You're watching, you're looking at that phone too much. But at least I can be out and about with my phone.
1: Well, the phone, the big thing is the phone is not a phone. I mean, so I give a talk about this and how things have evolved. It's a it, And there's a really good book about this, The Making of the iPhone, because there were two teams that Jobs had going. One was taking the – remember the iPod with the little circle yep. thing on it? They were trying to add in a phone to that. The other people, the Mac team, trying to shrink the Mac down to a phone, and they won, right? And that's why it, – it's a computer, and that's yeah. the thing. Since two, It's not a phone. I ask people in the presentation, what percent of the time do you use your phone as a phone? And it's less than 10%. Oh, yeah. It's to view Instagram and memes. <laughs> yeah. it's, I use it, it for banking. Come
0: yeah, on. Yeah. See, I've I've been a little reluctant to put all that on there because I'm always afraid I'll lose my phone. And then somebody, says, somebody finds my it's, whole life. It's all in the cloud. It's in <laughs> yeah, the cloud. Exactly. So I want to wrap this bad boy up. So we okay. talked about... First off the, we're talking to Chris Kaplis. and so you're at the MIT Center for Transportation and Logistics and you have this you have a different a lot of different programs but the one we were talking about was the micro masters program Micro masters and that and that you can do 5 12 week courses and then if you do that and pay for it and pass the test then you can you can get into MIT and in one you semester You apply
1: you apply. You apply to get in. We only have we can only bring in about forty a year, and we're graduating about seven eight hundred a year with do you the micromasters. you need micro like a straight A student to get in there? No, we don't look at your undergrad grades. All we look at are how'd you do in the micromasters, and then uh, letters of recommendation, your essay, and we just see it. There, it's it's made for the non-traditional student. No, I see. And I we're love that. Some and really great. We just students. talked about all of these different.
0: Just humongous challenges. The environmental challenges that we face are huge, and we're going to have to deal with those. The engine we use is going to be changed, obviously. Who knows what we're going to use? But all of those engines, all these parts, all have to go through supply chains. And the supply chain in retail, we have no idea what that's going to look like in 10, 15 years. So we really have to educate ourselves. There's a lot of guys out there who listen to my podcast. They're freight brokers. And I've said on my podcast before, I get the sense there'll be a lot fewer freight brokers in a generation. So don't look at yourself as a freight broker. Look and say, I'm in this supply chain and I'm going to become an expert in the retail supply chain or the cold chain supply chain or the automotive or the industrial. Become an expert. And one of the ways to do that is with some more education. And I think this is absolutely critical. Again, I think um, logistics is the tail to the dog, which is supply chain. And so
1: we all have to become really good at the supply chains that we serve. I agree. And brokers, it's funny. Brokers like carriers, like truckload carriers, there's uh, tens to hundreds of thousands of them because the barrier to entry and exit is very small and makes them very competitive. I don't think the number of brokers is going to go down dramatically because the entry is so easy and you find a niche to what you're saying. But I think platforms are starting to rise. But I've had brokers talk to me about bloodless brokerage. They think a robot can do it, and I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. More and more, of that process is automating, but you still need a person in there for certain things. So we've done a lot of work at that. With DAT. I think you'll be
0: able to manage a lot more with one guy. I joke about it. We used to. We, you ever see that little the the stat that said a hundred years ago we were all farmers, and then we all became factory workers. Then the number one job became clerk some point the number one job is going to be data scientist who's looking over a, a whole bunch of data and making so recommendations it's, it's just
1: changing so technology it it makes some jobs obsolete but it opens up new jobs yeah you couldn't imagine so i started my career
0: as a I worked on CAD systems. I was a draftsman on the board, which look it up, kids. You can look it up. You use triangles and compasses. I was a draftsman.
1: That's what I learned. I still have my drawing kit. I, <laughs> yeah. did, I did this stuff. And
0: so I did body. Civil I was a body designer. We got paid super good money. By the way, when I got my degree and they said, we're going to promote you to engineer, my team said, oh, Joe's such such an idiot. He's taking a pay cut to go be an engineer. Because then designers got paid that well. The CAD systems... Almost eliminated. You don't find anyone called designer anymore. I bumped into somebody I used to work with at the store. He's not working in a professional capacity anymore. He was a really good designer. So it's, it's, and it doesn't mean I, I cease to exist, but that there's a lot fewer of those designers that needed because the tech does the job. And that's what we have to look for in a lot of these roles. That's why education is so important.
1: It's happening in the warehouses. You know, just because you have Kiva or some kind of robot doesn't mean you need as many pickers, but you need more techs, right? You need more technicians. Or- we got so- better
0: jobs. By the way, I worked in automotive and when I first started in the 80s, God, it sounds old, I would walk through and anyone who worked in an assembly plant was getting dirty, sweaty, <laughs> tired, and potentially injured by the job, either that day or over time because of the repetitive use. Now, if you walk through an automotive assembly plant, the, there's fewer people, but what they're doing is they're watching the machines. They're making sure everything stays within, within the right parameters. So the world is changing. And again, I think yes. the same thing, warehouses, we've talked about it for a generation, them becoming automated. Now they are, <laughs> because nobody's, nobody's raising their kids to go work in those warehouse jobs. It might, your grandparents might get off the boat or great-grandparents- And they say, oh my God, this is a great job. I got in a
1: warehouse. I'm indoors all day. Your kids and your grandkids aren't looking at the world the same way. (laughs) Yep, yep, yep. And so the approach to automation in the warehouse is two very different ways, uh, whether it's fixed or whether it's flexible. So there's a lot of interesting stuff going on. I agree. Yep. So I want to ask you, what's the answer in any order you want?
0: What's next for you? What's next for MIT and all the programs we just discussed? And what's next for our our industry? And you know, that's a huge, huge thing you couldn't answer, but your perspective on those three things.
1: Yeah. So what I'm working on now is uh, continuing both Freight Lab and at DAT Freight and Analytics is helping shippers better understand how they should procure. And so it used to be you throw everything to contract, right? Everything gets an RFP. And we're learning that a lot of those lanes, 50 to 60% of the lanes that you put out there don't get handled by the contract anyway. They go to the spot market. So what we're doing now is determine, okay, what are the lanes that you should use for dedicated fleet? What are the lanes you should put and have contracts on? And what should you let go to spot? Because that flexible part of your portfolio is something that shippers are um, don't like doing because you like certainty. And so you think that if I have a contract on a lane that it's going to go at that rate? And we, all, if you're in the business at all for more than a week, you know that's not the case. So the idea is use the right kind of contract or form of relationship for the different parts of your network. That portfolio approach to transportation procurement—that's something I'm doing both at DAT here at Freight Lab and kind of a little more scientifically defining that process. CTL as a whole, what we're doing is continuing to move forward in supply chain. We've done a lot of work in uh, sustainability. We are uh, the author of the CSCMP and MIT Sustainability Survey. We run every year, and this will be our third or fourth year doing it. We have probably 3,000, 5,000 responses, and it's giving a state of sustainability. We've done a lot of work uh, specifically looking how to measure it, how to minimize your sustainability impact. We do a lot of work in resilience of an enterprise, How do you sustain a disruption of any kind, whether it's 9-11, a terrorist attack, or a pandemic, or just a change in demand? We do a lot of work in humanitarian logistics as well. My colleague, uh, Dr. Jared Gensel, works with FEMA and other organizations. How do you handle during a chaotic time or in an emerging developing economy? We do a lot of work in last mile delivery. Uh, Dr. Matthias Winkenbach does a lot of work there. And because last mile, it's funny, when you talk to Walmart 10 years ago, last mile was to the store. Now, last mile, it's so many ways whether it's to the house or whether it's, you know, buy online, pick up in the store. They are doing so much with the pickup for groceries. It's, it's dramatic how they've changed. So we've done a lot of that work as well. So what we try to do at, at CTL is look and try to constantly look around the corner and see what's next and what things can we help industry with to advance the state of the practice and state of the art. And then for the industry as a whole, you know it's a great time to be in supply chain i mean pre-pandemic you had to explain to people what a supply chain is now everyone knows what a supply chain is the thing that's stopping me from getting what i want right no toilet paper is a supply chain issue right can't get whatever it's supply chain issue so visibility is up there and so it's a great time to be working in supply chains
0: Yep, excellent, excellent. So what I'll do, Chris, is I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile. I'll put a
1: link to all of these things. I'd like to get a link. You have a podcast. So what is your podcast? Yeah, my podcast is called uh, Freightvine. It's, uh, I actually just recorded my 91st episode. Right? Not as many as you. I do uh, it every two weeks. <laughs> and so recent ones, I, I had a, a good guest that you might want to have. is Christopher Mims, Christopher Mims from the Wall Street Journal. I would he love that. I was just column. That was going to be my next question to you. is he Who wrote, else should I interview? He wrote a book called Await Arriving Today. I highly recommend it. It's really good. And I have uh, Ian Jeffries, the uh, president of the American Association of Railroads on. That gets released very soon, talking about how the, the strike, uh, potential strike, and how there's a shifting of rail to the I East think, Coast I think I've for had containers versus the podcast. West Coast. Yeah, interesting guy. That's yeah. really interesting stuff. So yeah, it's every other Thursday. And so it's it's kind of like this. It's a conversation just mainly with people i want to talk to right but what i love about what you're doing and i'm sure this is reflected in
0: your podcast and it's called freight finds freight find freight find the freight find
1: i didn't pick the name i didn't pick the name talk to marketing
0: but what i love about that is you're dealing with research and and i i i talk to a lot of people and there's not everybody has to have you know research but it is always helpful when you're talking about the future to be able to point to some data rather than just a hunch that you and your buddies have.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, data, it's funny. When I got into this industry in the 90s, the only other PhD in trucking that I knew was Chris Lofgren, that then became the president of Schneider because he got his PhD from Georgia Tech. Now, you can't go to a brokerage of any size that doesn't have an analytics team. Data scientists, it. masters, PhDs, they're everywhere. And mm-hmm. so it's they've just finally discovered... It's a data-driven business, an industry. Oh, by the way, I had talked to... Oh, uh, I forgot his name. But anyway, he
0: said that more and more Wall Street people want their data because it's an indicator of what's moving where. And he said, so it it's its a—it's an indicator that moves a little faster than the, most of the other indicators because you yeah. say...
1: Yeah, so if you look at, at DAT... So we have $150 billion of transportation moves a year. If you know this market, that's half of the truckload moves. Truckload market is about $310 billion. Almost half of that is coming through DAT. And you can get a lot of inferences out of that. I, I agree. There's a lot of insights you can gain. Industries are waking up to discover what you can learn by following transportation.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. So I'll put a link to all of the things you give me. Hopefully, you give me something of the MicroMasters. Hopefully, uh, for sure, Freight fine And anything else, uh, again, I think I've written down future freight flows, and I saw that you had something called Freight, freight Lab. My Freight Lab, yes. A- and then the stuff you, some of the stuff you're doing over at DAT would be great. Sure,
1: I will send that off. And hopefully, you can introduce me to this Christopher, is it Mims? MIMS. Yeah, just send them an email. I think it's ChristopherMIMS at WSJ.com. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time. All right.
0: Thanks. And thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support's very much appreciated. Until next time, onward and upward. You have been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage with leaders in the logistics and supply chain community if you like what you hear please subscribe hit the like button and leave us a nice review on apple or spotify or wherever else you listen also please check out our videos on youtube and connect with us on linkedin we're very big on linkedin and you can also reach us on the logisticsoflogistics.com our website